This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host Jen Wilkin and JT English. And today we are joined by Dr. Michael Kruger. Dr. Kruger serves as the president and Samuel Patterson Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary. He is the author of many books, including but not limited to Canon Revisited, a biblical theological introduction to the New Testament, the gospel of the Savior, and the heresy of orthodoxy. On top of all that, he is a friend and a recurring guest of the podcast. Dr. Kruger, we're glad to have you on the show today. Thank you. Well, thanks so much. This is so fun. I'm excited to uh, be on. Well, we're honored to have you. I got to tell you, Canon Revisited uh, and the episode we did with you on the Canon are two of the episode. That episode I send to a ton of people. Mm-hmm. And that book is, mm-hmm. I just tell you, if you've got questions and you're, I, Dr. Kruger, has a lot of good books, and I have not had a chance to read all of them. I've read many of them. I will say this, though. There is not a better book, I think, for many people's questions about the shape of the canon than Canon Revisited. I give that book out all the time, so thank you for writing it. Yeah, well, thank you. That was a fun conversation that we had, and I'm glad it's useful to people. I think that probably is the book that most people think of when they uh, think about my writing, so I'm always encouraged to see how it's helped people. Yeah, well, we love it. We love it. So we're going to jump into Romans 3, 21 through 31 today. I'm going to ask, JT, would you read the passage for us just to get us going, and then we'll jump into some talking through some questions. Yeah, this is Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Excellent. Thank you, JT. So when we jump into this passage, Dr. Crew, maybe give us a background. Have you, have you ever had the chance that we're all teaching through Romans and uh, these passages as we go? Have you ever had a chance to teach through this portion of Romans? Oh, yeah. Uh, many times. In fact, I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you guys today for so many reasons. One is you're just a lot of fun to talk to, so that's great in its own right. And I'm sure if we talked about anything, we would have a good time. But you also picked, arguably, my favorite passage in Romans. And that's saying a lot, since Romans might be even one of my favorite books. So in effect, you've practically picked one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Um, okay. And incidentally, and you probably know this, this was Luther's, one of Luther's favorite passages. He referred to this as the center of the whole Bible, this passage, mm-hmm. which is wow. a pretty big statement, thinking about yeah. all the different things you could talk about. So yeah, I've taught, I had a, a Bible study here on the Charlotte campus I did for women for two years in the Book of Romans. And, and we did, of course, this passage at numerous chunks. And then I preached on it numerous times. So it's a great text. But w- what draws you to this passage? Because I think when people think about Romans in particular, they'll go to Romans 5, uh, Romans 8, Romans 12. Those are kind of the, I think, outside looking in, those are kind of the superstars of the uh, passages of the Book of Romans. Why, th- why does this passage draw your attention? Why, why do you... 
respond yeah, well, to I think I think where it sits is so important. So if you, you know, so few times now do we read a book straight through. And it's unfortunate. Right. Mm. It's atomistic in the way we look at a book. And, and it's understandable given how much time we have. But if you were to sit down and read Romans and you read 118 through, you know, basically 320, the verse right before our passage, you would be buried under this mound of like, you can't do it. You're a sinner. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. fall short. God's wrath is real. And you feel like in verse 20, the gavel kind of falls, right? I mean, we didn't read it because it's the prior verse, but Paul says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Like, boom. So mm -hmm. at that point, the reader is probably on the verge of despair. And then when yeah. verse 21 comes along, it's like the word but. But now. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes this passage so great. It's the great relief. Or you could even say it's the great release of the pressure that's been building up on the book so long. And so it's the consummate uh, statement of justification. Yeah. And on that topic, so we've been talking so far in the season, we've talked a little bit about the concept of the righteousness of God. You know, it certainly comes up before this verse in chapter three. I mean, you're hearing about it right out of the gate and it's locked into the thesis statement of the letter in verses 16 through 17. And yet it's not a phrase that has, uh, has a little debate to it. There's a lot <laughs> of debate when it comes oh, yeah. to the concept of the righteousness of God in the New Testament, we've tried to communicate to our audience, hey, this can feel like a very simple, straightforward phrase, and Paul's certainly using it to great effect in Romans, but in current New Testament scholarship, the last, what, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of New Testament scholarship has been marked by a lot of concentration around what actually does the phrase righteousness of God mean for yeah. all of Paul, but particularly in Romans. Could you give our listeners just maybe a broad sense of the New Testament scholarship kind of current in the, the last few decades on this concept of the righteousness of God and what are some of the dominant, I guess, emphases? Yeah, well, I mean, you pegged it. Righteousness of God is arguably the theme of Romans. It's certainly mm -hmm. the theme that comes up in Paul's theme verse, which is typically 16 and 17, and mainly 17. The righteous shall live by faith. And so the righteousness of God is the dominant theme, and he picks up on it numerous times. It has been debated extensively. It might help our listeners to know that in the Greek, you're dealing with what's called a genitive. It's dikaiosune to theu, so it's righteousness of God. And to make the debate simple for this conversation, there's sort of two major options. There's more than that, but there's sort of two major options. Is this a reference to God's righteousness and whether it's sort of on display and is his character being upheld? Um, is he faithful to his covenant? Okay, that's option A when you talk about the righteousness of God. Is God righteous is the question, right? But then the second option is what we call a, a sort of a genitive of source. Is, are we talking about righteousness from God? So is this something that God is giving is there a righteous status you can receive from him? Now, you can imagine that debate has gone on for generations. The reformers did the, the genitive of source, righteousness from God. Then with a the new perspective on Paul, flip back to the other one, which is, no, this has to do with God's covenant faithfulness. I, I'm, I'm sticking with the reformers on this one. I think it's a genitive mm -hmm. of source. I think Paul's main theme in the whole book and in this passage is that there's a righteousness available to sinners that doesn't come from law keeping. It comes as a gift from God through Christ. So it's yeah. a righteous status bestowed by God. And here's one other tidbit for you. You may not know this. The old NIV, the 1984 NIV, which some of us may have, I grew up on that. I don't know if some of others of you did. The, the 1984 NIV translated this in as righteousness from God. Really? Um, yeah, in the yes. English. It added the word from. And then in the modern translations, in ESV too, and, you know, I love the ESV, but I think I, I would say they just went neutral here. I, I think the, the, the original NIV got it right, is that the, the ESV just says righteousness of God and leaves it, leaves it up to you to figure it out. 
but uh, I think it's from is the right word there. Let me ask you this, Dr. Kruger, because I agree with your interpretation, but if you were teaching and preaching this, or even maybe counseling someone about God's character and nature, is I, I don't want to be neutral, but is it possible to say yes to both? Mm-hmm. Well, sure. I mean, uh, any phrase you could say, you could look at it from multiple angles. And, and in this very passage, and we can get to it later, one set of verses in this passage, I think, clearly refers to God's character. Mm-hmm. And so the term righteousness is used in different ways, even within the same text. But the overall construction, I think, as a whole, I think is more about uh, something that we, a righteous status we're getting from God rather than uh, just a reflection on his own covenant faithfulness. Although, of course, you're right. He is righteous (laughs) and he is faithful and we can always affirm that. So in one sense, the answer is which one? You could say, well, both. But I think narrowly, the argument is clearly a source. And one of the reasons I think that, and we'll get to it, is that he says this is a righteousness of God that comes by faith. That's right. So think about it. Once you say that, now you realize, oh, it's a status that I can get. So it's not about, mm-hmm, hey, God's mm-hmm. got a righteous character. It's, it's rather something I can get. So before we move much further, I just feel that I need to say, just when I think the reasons I like you have been exhausted, Dr. Kruger, you present me with another one. <laughs> I feel about the NIV 1984 the way that some feel about the King James. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I, I'm with you. I'm t- Jen, I'm totally with you on that. I'd uh-huh, like to get the 84. Uh-huh. Well, actually, I have it in my old version. I, it's all tattered. Uh, how much do you want for it? I will. I mean, they're getting hard to find. Like, oh. if you want a copy, you got you to gotta go You gotta go deep into the I don't understand why it. they've not published both. Okay. That's well, so we're gonna, confusing to me. We're going to cry and hug in just a second, but yes, we gotta keep, we got to keep we moving will. on. <laughs> but I do want to circle back to something that you said, because it pops up a lot anytime you're studying um, an epistle. And that is, you mentioned the new perspective on Paul. And I don't know that all of us know what that is. What is the difference between what the reformers would have said about Paul and the new perspective? Can you give us like the cheap version or the short version? Oh man, yeah. Well, I'm going to give you my best 30 second version and it won't be 30 seconds, but I'll try. Okay. So here's the quick version of it. Reformers have typically thought that when Paul says, hey, we're, we're saved apart from the works of the law, that he means works of the law as meritorious law keeping to earn your salvation. Mm-hmm. The new perspective comes along and says, well, not so fast, because first century Judaism wasn't a works-oriented religion. And if they weren't a works-oriented religion, and they believed you were saved by faith, then they, that's clearly what, not what Paul's fighting against, they would argue. Instead, mm-hmm. what Paul is fighting against is this idea of cultural boundary markers around Judaism. So the works of the law isn't a reference to meritorious law-keeping so you can be saved. Works of the law, rather, according to the new perspective on Paul, is a reference to the things that make you distinctively Jewish. So it would be circumcision, food laws, Sabbath keeping. And so Paul's whole point, according to the new perspective, isn't that, well, you're not saved by works and now you're saved by grace, but rather you're not presented to God as, as being in his favor because you're a Jew. You can also be in his favor because you're a Gentile. So it defines justification horizontally, Jew versus Gentile, rather than defining justification vertically, God and satisfying God's wrath. So now, as a side note, I think there's an element of truth there. I think the new perspective mm-hmm. people have highlighted a lot of really useful things. But when all the dust settles, I mean, I'm, I'm not a new perspective guy, but that's a, that's a quick version of it. I'm surprised I did it that fast, actually, now that I think about it. That, was, that, was, really that was really good. And then yeah. also, how new is the new perspective? Well, these, these are harder things. I mean, it's sort of hit its stride in the last 20 to 30 years, but it's sort of traced back to a very famous essay by a, a German scholar by the name of Kirster Stendhal, I believe is the main name, of, uh, name of him, where he, he argues that, you know, first century Judaism maybe isn't the, the works righteousness that we think it is, and then maybe Paul's projecting onto it, or that we're rather, sorry, that we're projecting onto Paul our sort of own proclivities. Mm -hmm. But then a very famous book by E.P. Sanders called Paul and Palestinian Judaism was key in this, and that was published in the 70s, and so off you go. I mean, 
JT's Ralph got it right JT there. JT is flashing it at us right what now. Elevator. Yeah. Oh, you have it in your uh, hands. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So it looks like we planned this, which, yeah. okay. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to talk about it. Yeah. It's, well, it's, yeah. It's, it's a useful book. And, I mean, it really and, is, but. JT yeah. basically treats it as a second Bible. Isn't that right, JT? Well, you know me and EP. Speaking of things you want to edit out of this when we're done, that's why you want to Get that out of here. No. But, but to, be in, to be in conversation with a new perspective is helpful because I think it actually highlights oh, yeah. even more. I mean, I, it's, it's one of those things that when, and we love this on this podcast, is we love talking to people that we have disagreements with. Not sure. You, we agree with you, Dr. Kruger. But like to be in conversation <laughs> with N.T. Wright, to be in conversation with E.P. Sanders and others actually helps us, I think, come to a greater understanding of what we do mean when we come to conversations about works of the law, the righteousness of God, I think it actually creates greater conviction in what the reformers were originally teaching. What, I'm sorry, one more follow-up then would yeah. be, who would be the names that like our listeners might know if they're like reading commentaries or whatever, who would be the names of the most prominent current proponents of the new perspective? Well, I mean, in the evangelical world, it's going to be N.T. Wright, who's going to yeah. be the most notable um, yeah. But of course, and this has been observed many times, there really is no one new perspective. There's new perspectives, mm-hmm. plural. They all have their variants. So N.T. Wright would be one. So sort of James Dunn would be one as two sort of prominent sort of prongs in the discussion. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's various New Testament scholars sort of that, that have sympathy to the new perspective. You know, like a Michael Bird would probably say that he's sympathetic to many things in it, although I don't think he would purely identify himself as a new perspective Mm -hmm. guy from front to back. He's sort of a hybrid view. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, And I appreciate those many things about all those Mm -hmm. guys. I think they they Mm -hmm. have a lot of interesting insights. But, you know, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I I, I don't align fully with that camp, obviously. It's really helpful. So this phrase, righteousness of God, that we've been talking about, Paul goes on and he says, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So what's Paul trying to get us to see here? What does it mean that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law? Has, Has something changed? The law and the prophets bear witness to it. But this, what Paul's talking about, it seems like, no, something is different now. It exists outside the law yes. and so what you see in 21 is Paul in his redemptive historical macro overview. He is saying we have, we have ushered in a new era, okay? And what he means is now that righteousness that we so desperately as sinners need, that righteous status we have to have if we're going to stand before holy God, it's been fully revealed in what Christ has done. And you get that righteous status apart from law keeping. So no longer would you think that you could get it by just keeping the Mosaic law. Now, of course... Paul would agree very quickly that you couldn't have kept it in the Old Testament either and mm-hmm. been saved. So it's not so much you're saved by works and now you're saved by grace. That's not the difference. The difference is that now the means by which we're saved by grace has been manifested. Namely, Jesus has shown up and he's kept mm-hmm. the law for us and he's died to pay the penalty for law breaking. Um, and so he's really making that point. So if you want to understand what apart from the law means, you have to go back one verse where he says in the prior verse, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified. So basically saying law-keeping and all its ramifications, not just circumcision and, and Sabbath and food laws, but any law-keeping as meritorious works righteousness, we now can see plainly is not the way you're saved. You're saved by a righteousness that's revealed from God by faith in Christ. And so this is mm-hmm. a just grand declaration. You're, you, you've used this phrase a couple of times now, and I just want to pause on it. This is a very gin move for me to do, but I think it's significant. <laughs> meritorious works of righteousness, by that you're saying what Paul is calling into question here 
certainly what he, he he did not believe was the case before this passage, but what he's making abundantly clear is that works of the law, food laws, Sabbath keeping, all of those things, they would not earn the kind of merit necessary to generate the righteousness that Paul is talking about here. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, so this is, this is a righteous status you cannot achieve on your own. This is a righteous status you can only get as a gift from God. And the reason I use the term meritorious works righteousness is because Christians are still called to have works right, to be righteous in what we do. We're still called to do good works. And so I'm talking about good works as a means by which you're saved. Well, that's bad, but good works in and of themselves aren't bad. And the reason that that's so important is, of course, the very end of the passage ends with that, right? Paul's big sort of last point, as we'll get to, I know, is going to be, hold on a second, I'm not chucking the law out here. Mm-hmm. The law is still right. relevant for the Christian, but just not in the way you want to use it. And so, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, that's, that's the reason I, I use the terminology in the way I do. I just want to make, make it clear that I'm talking about a certain kind of works. works in, no, in, in that's really life. helpful. That's really helpful. And in verse 22, the righteousness of God, so now we're here again, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I, I, I do want to put my cards on the table, and I, I, I think that you're right that this righteousness of God phrase is used as a reference to source. Righteousness is source. Righteousness is from. This yeah. here in verse 22 seems to me to be abundantly clear. It feels less clear to me in verse 21. Is there something in the nature of the usage here that's changed, or is it just the context? Or what am I not seeing in verse 21? Because in verse 21, when I read this, I'm going, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This seems to me that it could be in reference to the covenant faithfulness of God, his character, his just and faithful nature. We're saying the law and the prophets were talking about this, but now it's been demonstrated outside of that in the, the righteous man, Jesus Christ. But in verse 22, now it's seems like there is no question. This righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all. Maybe that's what JT was getting at with a both and here or a yes to both of these. Is this a moment where we're seeing two different angles or you'd say no. At present, we have been talking about righteousness from and we are talking about righteousness from. Or has something changed between verse 21 and 22 in the yeah, usage of so that phrase? I, I agree with JT theologically, of course, is that God is righteous and, and, and certainly Romans reveals his, his righteous character. But I don't think there's anything different going on in 21 and 22. And let me tell you why. So you look at the phrase righteous of God in 21. uh, Notice what it says. How has it been manifested? Apart from the works of the law. All right. So in other words, it's not so much about, about God's character and nature, but rather you have some sort of righteousness that is attainable apart from works of the law. And the only only way you think about works of the law is something that you and I do. Right. So in other words, whatever the righteous has to do with that, it's not achieved by law keeping. Mm-hmm. So that okay. means it must be given as a gift. So once you start looking at it in that overall context, I don't think there's a way out of the idea that it's a, it's a subjective genitive here, that it's a or sorry, that it's a genitive source here, that it's a, a source. Yeah, uh, I agree with that, uh, uh, that it's coming from God. Now, when we get to 25, I do think there's a shift here. And I think that, you know, we can talk about it when we when we get there. But from my angle, at least, 21 and 22 are using the term in the same way. So for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, that probably out of Romans 3, that's got to be like, that's probably one of the most familiar because of its usage in Romans Road and various gospel presentations. So all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, Paul wants to make sure there is no distinction. We've talked a lot on the podcast about the context of the letter, the occasion of the letter, the audience of the letter, that this is a church comprised of Gentile and Jewish Christians, and there seems to be some level 
level of dispute among the two over really maybe who should be sitting in judgment upon the other. Is Paul here again with the no distinction? Is he making a generalizing, totalizing claim about humanity? Or is he speaking specifically to the pastoral occasion of, hey, I've got a church here where Jews and Gentiles are basically judging one another and I need them to see you all have this problem. This is universal. Also, any hot takes you want to give us on the Romans road? Also, we are receiving that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, hot takes may not be my thing. Um, yeah, I, well, maybe they should be. But um, yeah, I, I, I would say here that when it comes to the context, I, I really do think you, what you just described is a both and in the sense that certainly it applies to his audience, which from what we sure. can tell in Rome was probably a mix of Jew and Gentile. But it certainly applies to all of humanity. All okay. of humanity has, has fallen short of the glory of God. And that, that is just picking up what he just finished in chapter 3, right? The first 20 verses yeah. in chapter 3 were, were basically saying no one is righteous, not even one. You know, no mm-hmm. one does good, at least in the absolute sense. So there's no escaping this. And by the way, verse 23 is not out of place here. And of course, no one is suggesting it is. But I want you to notice how well it fits into his argument. Paul is saying, why is it that this righteousness has to be a gift from God? Well, because you can't earn it on your own through meritorious law-keeping, why is that? Because all are sinners that fall short of the glory of God. So Hmm. the timing of this verse just pounds the nails into the coffin of works righteousness. He's just saying, look, Mm -hmm. it just can't be done. This is why you have to rely on God as the source of your righteous status, because you can't earn it on your own. Now, by the way, I don't like, you know, I'm not the first one to, of course, say this. The term falls short there, no pun intended here, but that falls short of what that means. (laughs) Um, And... uh, you no, know, it didn't feel intentional at all. It yeah, felt very yeah, natural. Yeah, yeah. yeah thank you. Um, <laughs> I, I really didn't intend to do that, but there it was. Um, yeah, the Greek term here, hustereo, is usually translated this way, but it, it's it's misleading because it makes it sound like you almost got there. Right. And, and yeah, that's what of, I think about it. You're sort of like, well, you gave it a good run, man. You know, you fell short, <laughs> but, you know, maybe a little more time you could have made it. And it's like, no, the, the term isn't really not English fall short doesn't capture. I think it should be something like, lacks is probably the better service. Mm-hmm. Every human being lacks the glory of God. You don't have it. You don't have the status you need to stand in his presence. So, you know, I, I thought the ESV would do it differently here, but they didn't. They, they stuck with with fall short, and I, I don't think that quite gets you there. I've been wrestling with this in this in this verse in particular, Dr. Kruger, because glory of God, it seems like when it's used in Romans 5, has an apocalyptic nature to it. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But some scholarship in Romans 8 suggests that glory of God is used with a reference to the Adamic glory, what the glory that was intended for us to live as vice regents or stewards uh, and that we fell short of that, uh, fell short of what was intended. But a lot of times when I hear this passage preacher taught, it's a contrast with the totalizing public display of God's righteousness as glory and the fact that we lack that both legally and experientially or for it foundationally and existentially. When we think about the glory of God that we're falling short of here, wh- what is it? Are we falling short of what God intended for us as his image bearers? Are we falling short of God's uh, eschatological display of his glory in the final judgment? Or is this just a contrast between our unrighteousness, both foundationally and experientially in our lives, and God's public display of holiness and righteousness of which the law was a picture and Christ the perfection. What are we falling short of? I think we use this phrase, glory of God, and a lot of times we use it very quickly, very fast, but I feel like a lot of times we don't give very much substance to it. Yeah, I mean, we could pause on the term. I mean, the term glory here uh, is is consummately 
the way you describe God's godness, right? He is mm. glorious and no one shares in his glory. He is holy. He is, he is distinct from us uh, by virtue of his glory. Um, and, and, and there's a sense in which I think we probably don't spend enough time sort of just meditating on that. I don't think eschatological glory is primarily in view here. It doesn't mean that Paul doesn't have a horizontal timeline where God's full glory will be revealed. But I think what he has in view here is probably more along the lines of God's nature, God's character as holy, on how far short we fall of it. Um, so I guess that'd be your option three, I, if I'm remembering the way you laid those yeah. out. Although it's not different substantively from your option one either, which is that also means we have not lived up to what God intended right. us to be in the original creative order. But, but, but by using doxes here in the Greek, I think there's a sense in which Paul is reminding us, you, do you realize how glorious and, and holy and wonderful and amazing God is? And you, I just got finished proving to you, don't really get that close to it in your current state. So why would you think you could ever stand before him on your own righteousness? So I think yeah. it just ex accentuates this point even further. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up his anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of his immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Moving forward in verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So let's just, uh, let's start with this. What is the word propitiation? So maybe a listener's hearing that and is going, propitiation, that sounds like a hundred dollar word. Can yeah. you give us a 99 cent explanation yeah. for it? Yeah, you guys, I love you guys today. You're like, I want you to give 30 second answers to 30 minute yes. questions. Yes, that's yes. what podcasts are for, you know. Do so. what sure. we want you to yeah, do. Exactly. Yes. I'm, I'm like, you know, dancing around, doing my little thing mm -hmm. here. Uh, so, <laughs> but no, I mean, you have to, you have to, what I tell my students all the time is you got to learn your little elevator speech on these things. Right. If you can't, you know, you can't just tell your parishioner, well, let's sit down and talk 45 minutes about propitiation or, Righteousness You're exactly God, right. You, you know, you, or new perspective on Paul, for that matter. 
But yeah, I love this word. Uh, I, I'm, I'm appreciative that the ESV kept it. Um, I will say that, that this is one thing they did improve over the 84 NIV, uh, Jen, as we keep hey now. reflecting on this. Hey, I'm a big 84 NIV fan, but I think they use, and it's been a while, but I think they use some broad sort of you know, sacrifice of atonement kind of language here. But someone can correct me if they actually kept propitiation in the older version. But the short version is this is a very specific Levitical Old Testament sacrificial language that Paul's invoking here, and he's applying it to Jesus. It's a word that narrowly means to basically satisfy, and I, use, I like to use the term soak up all the wrath of God. So this is a God-directed statement. It's saying that in terms of what Christ has done, he's fully paid a price in such a way that all God's wrath, the very wrath he talked about in 118, by the way, and the whole book's been about it, has been fully sort of absorbed by what Christ has done, so there's none left for you. So it has to do with God's disposition, right? It has to do with soaking up his wrath so that he's fully for you and there's no sin yet uh, left to punish. And so it's a, it's a really specific term. I'll point out one thing I think is overlooked here in this verse often is the person offering up Jesus as a propitiation. When you read it again, you'll, we, we read it, but it's worth knowing it's God that is presenting Christ as a propitiation. Um, and, you know, the ESV put, uses the word put forward, but present is the better term here because that's what a, what a priest would have done in the Old Testament. They'd have brought a sacrifice and presented it. So just think about the irony of this. God is basically offering his own son to be the sacrifice that he himself demands. And so there's a sense in which no one could say God's just this wrathful deity who's angry all the time and just you got to placate him with blood. No, this is a God who loves you and he's going to give his own son for you, and he's the one who offers him. So it's a very specific word with a lot of really neat connotations. To be And this work that God does is to be received by faith. And then in verse uh, 25, the, the second part of it, this was to show God's righteousness. And, and then it gives kind of a proof for that, right? Like, okay, this was to show God's righteousness. Why? Well, because he, in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. So we've been talking about this, and, and you've indicated now a couple of times you think this phrase is certainly talking about righteousness of God as a character attribute. And do you feel like the proof of that is that then Paul gives you an example of his character? character. Hey, divine forbearance. He moved, he, he looked over, he passed over these things. He was covenantally faithful. He was just, he was faithful to his promises, even in the midst of faithlessness. That's a testament to this righteous character. Is that what we're to see here? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, JT's comments earlier about this as a reference to God's character. I think this is where we see it. And it's mm -hmm. not the only place mm -hmm. we see it in Romans, but we see it here. I think the context demands it because of the way that the verse unfolds to show God's righteousness because he had passed over sins formerly. So clearly you're dealing with God's character. And by the way, it's not righteousness of God here. That, that's an interesting thing to note. It's, it's, it's right. his righteousness. So actually mm -hmm. the phrase is not the same as the dikaiosune tutheu, which we keep seeing pop up again and again. Would you, would you make the case, Dr. Kruger, that if Paul was trying to indicate more of a covenantal faithfulness of God to his people, that he would have used this similar language, most likely, in verses 22 and 23? Uh, you mean just his righteousness? Yeah, without, like the, it, um, without the genitive source? I don't know. Maybe. I think that the fact, though, that he doesn't use the same exact that's, that's what I mean. construction yeah. here in 25 makes me at least open to the fact that he's using the term differently. And I think the context yeah. suggests that that's exactly what's happening. And mm -hmm. what I think is interesting about it is, is it raises a point about justification that people don't consider. And this is something that I think all our ministries need to reflect on more. No one pauses to wonder whether in the act of justification, 
whether God has somehow betrayed or uh, violated his own righteous standards. In other words, mm-hmm. no one seems afraid that God may somehow have done something unjust by letting wicked people go. And I, th- I think this passage, Paul feels that. He's like, well, well, wait a second. How does God stay righteous if he doesn't punish sin? And the answer, of mm-hmm. course, is he punishes it in Jesus. But we, we need to just be bothered by the potential that, wait a second, God, is it possible that God's trying to save us? He could violate his own nature? And isn't, right. isn't that something we should be concerned about? How does God preserve his own righteousness when he saves sinners? Because if we let a sinner go on earth that committed a heinous crime, we wouldn't think that was good. So how's mm-hmm. God pulling it off? And uh, yeah. Paul, Paul, Paul addresses that. I think that's what he's getting at here. Yeah, and in verse 26, it seems like he makes it clear. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus uh, or the one who has faith in Jesus. So this idea of like he's not unjust by virtue of his justifying work. He is just and he is able to be just and the justifier of those who are unjust by virtue of what he has done with the propitiatory work of Jesus, right? Yeah, and I think in, in gen, general like this point, I think what, what that all points to is that when God saves us, he never lowers the standard of his law. He never, mm-hmm. he never says, hey, well, I, you know, round one, I tried to give you this law thing. I guess that didn't work out very well. Well, now just don't worry about it. You know, as if it's like, well, you know, I'm going to move on to plan B now. No, God's never, not, not a milli, millimeter has he backed off the requirements mm-hmm. for 100% perfect obedience. It's just now that 100% perfect obedience has been maintained by his son. And so the very last verse in that section, 26, is just a gem that he could be both just and justifier. Well, that's the whole enchilada right there. How can mm-hmm. God justify yeah. sinners and stay just himself? Well, you just found out how, because Jesus is righteous, and he perfectly kept the law for us, and he punishes all the sin that ever was committed in Jesus. That's and good. actually, the little Greek there is fun, because I actually disagree with the ESV here a little bit. Just and justifier, it's, I would argue it's actually that he could be just while justifying. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And so it, it, the temporal sense there is important, that he could be just while he's justifying somebody, which I think yeah. is really the, the whole point. I'm writing that one down. I got a sermon coming up in a few weeks. That one's good. <laughs> there you go, man. That one's going to preach a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that will preach. Yeah. <laughs> Complete ulterior motives for inviting yeah. Dr. Kramer. Oh, no doubt. Do, do our heavy yeah. lifting. Just hey, do we, all, lifting. we all uh, borrow from each other all the time in a good way. That's, That's right. That's yeah. good. No doubt about that. Well, in verse 27, though, you can see how somebody could start getting a little confused by what Paul actually thinks the purpose of the law is. Mm-hmm. He says, what becomes of our boasting? Well, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Now, what is this law of faith? Is he, It seems like he he's contrasting it with the law of works, which he has been you know, talking about basically since the end of chapter 3. So this law of works is not the law that we're to live by, but we're to live by and our boasting is to be excluded by the law of faith. So what's the law of faith? Yeah, this, this is a little play on words here that I think is pretty creative by Paul. Um, and by the way, he uses namas a lot in Romans. And a, someone did a list of all the different ways he uses the word law. I mean, there might be double digits of the different ways he uses law here. But obviously, works of the law um, or law of works was what we've already talked about, which is the sort of mosaic law keeping as a means to be justified. So what would be the law of faith? Well, it's already been hinted at. It's the principle of faith here, the idea that you achieve that same mm-hmm. righteous status not by works, but by trusting in Christ. And of course, there's the zinger, right? The zinger is that that's how you eliminate boasting. Because if it was by mm-hmm. law keeping, boasting wouldn't be eliminated. But you eliminate boasting, 
if it's by faith, there's not much to boast in other than someone else's righteousness, which, of course, is what all of worship is. I mean, what is worship other than boasting in someone else's righteousness, not our own? Yeah. Now, I, I do want to, as we kind of land the plane here on this conversation, he comes back. So verse 28, for we hold that, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He has said this and he's saying it again. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Then in 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Here's a question and maybe a good place for us to kind of land. Is this law that Paul's talking about here, the law of faith or the law of works, another law? Is he saying that the law that we don't overthrow, the law that we are to keep by faith, the law that we are to uphold, is this the law of works or is it the law of faith or is it something else? Well, I mean, I think the last clause is pretty straightforward on that, in my opinion, at least, is that on the contrary, we uphold the law. And the law there is, of course, God's righteous standards for how we should live. And we uphold that law even while recognizing we don't keep it to earn God's favor. You know, I, I think Jen and I, not all of us, but I think Jen and I in particular have talked about this a good bit. Just this idea that grace is the greatest news in the world, but that doesn't negate the fact that we still, at the core of our Christian life, are, are striving towards upholding and keeping God's law. And it's amazing how often Paul just hits this refrain don't mm-hmm. think for a moment that grace means I don't care about law-keeping. He just means right. I don't care about meritorious law-keeping. And, of course, chapter 6 is all about that. He, he, mm-hmm. he hints at it here. He even hints. I'm actually, I'm actually preaching in chapter 1 this week, and it, made, it reminded me. You know, he talks about this is the Son of God according to power. He says, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Faith. And so it's almost like you could phrase a lot of what he's doing through the whole letter is you have received, you've not taken, apprehended, you have not achieved, you've received grace. Why? For the obedience of faith. And this is, I think, what he's getting here at the end of of chapter three. I agree. And I'd be curious to hear, I know we're landing the plane, but let me just throw in an emergency landing portion. Let me go back around the pattern again and wait. Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like... So often I have been told that people have a hard time reconciling the message of James with the teachings of Paul. And the more time I spend in Romans in particular, the more I don't understand where those two books Mm. got ever, were ever pitted against one another. I don't know if, I mean, I realize James is, you know, it's leaning more toward wisdom literature and genre, and maybe that's where the disconnect is for people, but it's like, Paul has over and over again said exactly what James is saying, that faith without works is dead. Yeah. Is it because James uses works in, in place of the law? Is that why people miss the thread? Well, they miss it for many reasons. That, that one phrase, of course, in James chapter 2 is throws some people off. But, but also they just talk about the law differently. When Paul uh-huh. talks about the law, he tends to think of it negatively at first, at least. And if you're trying yeah. to be saved by it, the law is your enemy. Right. James looks at the law through the lens of someone who's already saved, and, and therefore the law is his friend. So it sounds mm-hmm. like they're on different pages, but in reality, they're just dealing with different foes. So Paul's mm-hmm. dealing with basically legalists, and mm-hmm. James is dealing with antinomians. And mm-hmm. so they're just guarding different halves of the equation. And what's interesting about our day is that sometimes you, you talk to people and they think the only enemy around is, is, is legalists. Mm-hmm. And they don't realize that, well, actually, there's also antinomians. And, and honestly, we're all a mix of both. Yeah. So the, the curious thing is that any given individual is just going to retreat from one to the other and go back and forth. You know, you'd kind of chase yeah. them around because we're all like, inconsi- yeah. inconsistent. Exactly. So yeah. every, every congregation needs, needs both those books.
but you're right. People tend to think they're at odds, and they're not at odds. Kyle, can I ask one question oh. before we wrap up? I, I know we're going to wrap up here. No. I just thought, no. I mean, Dr. Kruger obviously <laughs> no. has spent a lot. I'm, I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, uh-uh. Here's oh, this is a total side note, Dr. Kruger. I've got a bone to pick sure. with Kyle, so just you're gonna you're gonna get no, some of our friendship let's, here. Let's pick some bones. I love it. I, I so. was I was on a, I was on a podcast yesterday with Kyle, and I just have to say, Kyle is one of the best podcast hosts in the world. Kyle and all of our Knowing Faith listeners believe that. However, mm-hmm. Kyle knows that I'm about to bring up, don't you? I Kyle, actually, we we have done 150 episodes here. of Knowing Faith. And I've done one with Adam Griffin, and Adam Griffin prayed for me before we started the podcast. <laughs> he did. He did. And and I was convicted. Never, Kyle's How never spiritual. prayed. <laughs> people like that made me yeah. uncomfortable. I was, no, yeah, here, here's was my like, question for you, Dr. Kruger. Probably the people who don't trick or treat on Halloween or anything like that. Yeah, it's like, where do these people oh, come from? Take. Yeah, you know. <laughs> hey, we're upholding the law here. That's exactly. all. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so Dr. Kruger, maybe one last, hopefully an easy question before you go, unrelated to the specific text, but I know you've spent a lot of time not only studying Romans, but the New Testament. If our listeners were trying to kind of grasp for themselves, obviously we're going to ask them to, re- to repetitively read Romans, but has there been any commentaries that have been particularly helpful for you as you've studied and taught Romans? Asking as a preacher that's about to start a sermon series in Romans? <laughs> yes, there's so many good ones. I mean, there's certainly many good academic ones and some recent ones that are really good. And there's, of course, the classics. Maybe you look at Hodge and Murray as the classics, more contemporary, yep. you look at Moo and Schreiner. And these are all really useful and so forth. And then on a really academic level, I love Cranfield's ICC yep. commentary on Romans. I think it's fantastic. But for the average listener out there, I think one of the best commentaries on Romans is still Martin Lloyd-Jones's. Martin Lloyd-Jones, as everyone mm. knows, preached like, what, 10 years yeah. through the book of Romans mm-hmm. on Friday nights or some crazy number like that. And they, they've taken all the sermons and they've made them into effectively commentaries. They're much more devotional, so they're much more accessible, but they're still really deep. And, sure. I, you know, he's just second to none in terms of really getting into the meat of it. So I, that's, that's where I would, would land as a suggestion. That's great. Thank you for that. I'm heading over to Amazon right now. I was there like, you yeah, go. you can't go wrong recommending Martin Lloyd-Jones, can you? Well, no, and on Romans, it's famous because of his, he, he did that long, long series at the Westminster Chapel in, in London mm-hmm. for years and years and I don't know how someone does it that long. I forget how many. I, 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 I've got the number somewhere in my notes of how many he did before it was all over, and it's a remarkable number. Well, I'll tell you, we're tremendously grateful to have had you on the podcast mm-hmm. today, Dr. Kruger. Absolutely. Thank you for always making time to join us. Listen, listener, if you are if you have not had the chance to read some of Dr. Kruger's work, I mentioned some of the books at the top. I would encourage you just Amazon, Michael Kruger. And if you're looking for a great place to start, his work on the canon is tremendously helpful and incredibly practical. Uh, particularly, I have found it to be of particular benefit for those who are struggling with just wondering like, why are these books of the Bible here? And you know, every right now we're just getting the same, the same kind of, conspiracies all over again on TikTok. I feel like I'm on TikTok watching all of the same things that TikTok, for the last century. Huh? To check out TikTok. Oh, yeah. What are you, like 12 years old? Why are you on TikTok? TikTok is I'm a t- source for canon discussions. I don't know if I've ever uh, <laughs> no, reflected no, tr- on that. So. Trust me, Dr. Kruger, if you waded into the waters of the TikTok canon yes, discussions, there's, uh, there's a lot of... There's a lot of TikTok scholars out there that are uh, basically just r- rattling off the same, you know, nonsense that have been spoken over the That's canon for good. centuries. And uh, but if you are somebody, or maybe you're you have a college student or high school student, they're going, "Hey, I can't trust the Bible." A bunch of people just got together and you know made a power play. Canon revisited will help dispel a lot of the most easy myths 
out there to dispel. Dr. Kruger's work is fantastic on that. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Kruger. Well, thanks. You guys are great. So much fun. I hope to have another conversation at some point down the road. Absolutely. Absolutely. In our next episode, we'll cover Father Abraham as we jump into Romans 4. If you're looking for Knowing Faith, you can find us on social media at Knowing Faith Podcast, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Grace and peace.